Jonah is known primarily as a whale's tail. It has been relegated to a story for children, a parable, an allegory, uh, at best an illustration of some kinds of truth. But in a little less than 100 years, the story has become attacked and ridiculed and mocked and sort of relegated by scholars and liberal scholars that it probably didn't occur, it couldn't have happened, it's not a real story, it's too hard for them to swallow. You'll wake up here soon, I have faith. G. Campbell Morgan wrote, men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they have forgotten to look at the great God. Beyond the fish story, Jonah, Nahum, Isaiah, and King Hezekiah, and many others play into the Assyrian history of which Jonah is one small piece of a much bigger storyline. The Old Testament for the believer in Christ, for those of us who believe God at His Word, who read it, who study it, who who believe the account and record is not fiction, not myth, but true and reliable, for the believer it should be, quote, enough that we have the account. But because the world and so-called scholarship etches away, challenges, vilifies, critiques us, is critical of us, mocks us, we find ourselves relegated more and more to a place where we, we can't believe those things because they obviously could not be true. But we'll find, and I hope as we begin the series to nudge you along in your thinking a little bit, the Assyrian Empire tremendous archaeological historical information about them was a real enemy for the northern part of the kingdom of Israel. The Assyrian record of what they kept, not just the Old Testament, but extra biblical, what the Assyrians have about their own storyline and about Israel is a wealth of information. And that's part of what I want to introduce you to today as we begin to look at the book. To put it simply, the archaeological evidence of the Assyrian Empire overwhelmingly endorses the fact that their conquest and battles with Israel were real. And we'll see not only from what some of those discoveries are, but what the text says about it, hopefully to blend archaeology, history, as well as biblical authority to show you you can have confidence in this word. It's not just a fish story. And if you see it just as a fish story, you're missing the bigger picture. Ancient Nineveh was the center capital of Assyria at its time, at its heyday. Today it is right across the Tigris River in northern Iraq by Mosul. And you know Iraq because of our conflicts and wars with Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan. Those names have become more familiar to the American ear in the past decade and if you Google your map search and look around, you'll see ruin and rubble where Nineveh was. Mosul, of course, is the larger, more vibrant area today. Uh, to introduce the story of Jonah, I want to go back to Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II was king in Israel from 793 B.C. to 753, 41 years technically. And we read in 2 Kings 14, 23, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash of Judah, Jeroboam, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. There were no term limits in those days. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, 
which he made Israel sin. And Old Testament Bible students will know well, Jeroboam, the first one, was the one who pushed Israel to a new level of sin and hubris. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was of Gath-Hefer. So we learn that Jonah is from an area called Gath-Hefer in the Zebulun tribe. So during this 41-year reign of Jeroboam II, I believe the account of Jonah occurs. We don't know precisely the time stamp, but it occurs sometime under Jeroboam II's uh, reign. Now remember, because we all forget these things, Israel is a divided kingdom now. We have the civil wars between Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And the way I remember these kinds of things in the alphabet, I comes before J. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. So they had divided, and this was not what God intended. We've got all these kings who are doing evil in their own eyes. They're doing evil, evil, evil. They may start out good. Josiah was one who finished well. Asa started out well, but he ended poorly. And so we have this history, this chronicle, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, of the divided kingdom and what's going on in those divisions. This book is addressing the northern part of Israel, and they're close up against Assyria, and we'll show you some pictures in a moment to make a little more sense. Hosea and Amos are contemporaries. They live at the same time as Jonah. Hosea and Amos are talking to the people of God. They are the prophets God called to talk to his people. Jonah is a prophet to go to Nineveh. Jonah has a different kind of job. Most prophets talked against or to or encouraged or talked about the coming wrath to Judah or to Israel. This prophet Jonah is going to the enemy. And he's going to tell them something. And so we see a little bit more of the rationale of his reluctance. Amos chapter 5, verse 27, I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus. God's telling his people, because you rejected me, you're not faithful. The divided kingdom, the civil wars, because of all this, I'm going to turn you over to, we'd say, the Gentiles. Hosea 11.5, Assyria, he will be their king because they refuse to return to me. The prophets are saying, because you aren't obeying me, I'm going to give you to the Assyrians. Not a one-to-one parallel by any comparison. America, because you've abandoned God, I'm going to let the terrorists rule you. That gives you a temperature of what this message would be like to them. Now, the Assyrians, there is so much archaeological evidence and written evidence that it's impossible to deny their existence. They were one of Israel's most powerful uh, enemies in the north. Nahum, your book of Nahum, is written 100 years after the book of Jonah. So what transpires in the book of Jonah to Nahum is quite a story in itself. We'll look at blushes of that as we go through the series. So during Jeroboam II's reign, Assyria has been dealt a blow by the Armenians. So there's, we might say, some Middle Eastern conflict. Uh, if your enemies are fighting each other, this gives Jeroboam II an opportunity. And so he moves north thinking he can regain a little bit more of the border that was part of the Davidic kingdom. 
Well, it doesn't go so well, but this is all the backdrop of 722 where the prophecies come true and Sargon II and 2 Kings 17 is the one who will come in and he will carry pretty much in mass northern Israel into captivity. Nineveh, again, is a massive city on the Tigris River, about 550 miles from Samaria. Like Babylon, it was protected by two walls. And when you go to a city archaeologically and you dig through the tells and the rubbles, uh, and a city's importance is often revealed by its walls. These walls were unprecedented. They were 50 feet wide and 100 feet tall. Unbelievable. This was an impenetrable city which means there was something important inside the city. And we know from history it becomes a place of the king's palaces, and the archaeology verifies all that. If you're a careful reader of your Old Testament, you are aware of names like Sargon II, Ershadon, uh, Ashurbanipal, Tiglath-Pileser, Shalmaneser, and Sennacherib, just to name a few of the Assyrian kings. And each of them added a layer of magnificence to Nineveh. Sennacherib is one of the main players. His palace is depicted in a number of ways. Uh, this particular relief is the siege and capture of Lachish uh, about 701 BC. Sennacherib uh, turned Nineveh into the capital proper. So he was the one that started making it a palace for the kings. It was described in antiquity as without uh, comparison, without rival in its splendor. And when you, uh, when you build your own palace and write your own history, you don't write about your losses, you only write about your victories. So the panels that uh, fill the king's palace, over uh, 80 of them, 8 feet tall and various widths, uh, are all about their victories, nothing about their defeats or bad decisions. The revisionist will do a better job of that later on. Uh, so these, these panels show the siege and capture of the city. Sennacherib was preoccupied with the Babylonian king in our Bibles, Isaiah 39, by the name of Merodach Babylon, Merodach Baladon, and 703 and following. And 15 months plus two years, they're fighting each other. And during that period, they're going to sack Lachish. Lachish is part of what we would call Israel. It's around the area of the old city, Jerusalem. They could not quite take it all, but they got most of it, and they were unable to uh, take the city, the capital center of Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem is like a, a, a gilded cage, is one way some of the authors explain it. Judah remained the capital of Jerusalem. The stone panels decorate the palace. This one shows Assyrian troops uh, attacking Lachish. You'll see the thrones being carried away. Uh, they're being plundered. Chariots are being either carried away or brought in. And the people of Lachish look on helplessly. At this point, about 200,000 people are deported. From the excavations of Nineveh, they were not done by Indiana Jones, by the way. They were done by a man named Henry Austin Layard. Layard began in the 1840s digging in this area, and his discoveries led to some of the most magnificent finds ever in history. In fact, the Brits spent almost a hundred years digging after Layard's discoveries in Nineveh. We have another name you may know, Tiglath-Pileser III in Nineveh. 
this panel shows the Assyrian soldiers with the pointed helmets. You also have archers you see there. You have their version of a tank, a battering ram. If you saw the Lord of the Rings trilogies, you see some pretty over-the-top, fictional ideas of battering rams. But these were massive things that Rome built, the ancients built, and they could go through walls. Therefore, you need a 50-foot thick, 100-foot tall wall to prevent your enemy from coming in and destroying the city. And that was the way you protected him. The Assyrians were a brutal people. They beheaded their, in, their captors. They, uh, they, they would take the Israelites and they would peg them down on all fours on the ground naked and they would carve their flesh off and keep them alive as long as possible. The reason that you behead your enemy is, is because it's easier to count heads. In fact, in antiquity, the term head counting or head count is how many people you killed because it's easier to count the heads than to try to deal with all the bodies that you have uh, massacred. The panels, again, do not depict the Assyrian losses, only their victories. Tiglath-Pileser is mentioned many times in the Bible, uh, 2 Kings 15, 16, on and on. You can check it on your own cross-references. The Sennacherib prism, also a companion cousin, the Taylor prism, they're almost identical. These prisms are 15 inches tall, approximately, and a little more than 5 inches wide. Uh, these are Neo-Assyrian, about 691, again, from Nineveh, which is modern-day northern Iraq. And these record the campaigns of Sennacherib, and that's why they are so important. One of them resides in Chicago, and one of them resides in the British Museum. Um, you can go see both of them behind glass, obviously. The major find here is, this is, if you will, the Rosetta Stone for the Assyrian Empire. And, uh, and the cuneiform writing on this prism uh, talks about the destruction of 46 cities. It talks about the destruction of Judah, the deportation of 200,150 people, and it mentions Hezekiah, king of Judah, four times. Understand what I'm saying. This is the Assyrian record of what they did to Israel. You with me? So we're reading extra-biblical archaeological evidence that proves that the Assyrians were fighting the Jews. The Assyrians were fighting Israel all the way back in antiquity during the time of Nineveh. Uh, the deportation would lead ultimately to an exile permanently. Again, 2 Kings 18 and 19, Isaiah 36 and 37 for those of you who want to read more. By the way, the defeat at Lachish, when they couldn't go in and get the city of Jerusalem, it's not found on the panels. Those stories aren't told. They aren't found in the prism. So historians will later revise history, as they always do, but the Assyrians don't like to record their losses. No one does, so you don't include that as part of your history. Uh, Ashurbanipal and the dying lion. The lion was a figure of power, it's always been associated as such from antiquity, even today. There's no enemy. The lion has no enemy, no predator of any kind. And so a king, of course, would choose a crest. Well, it's as old as a time. And so here, Ashurbanipal, this is 100 years later, Ashurbanipal's uh, panels. Archaeologists uncovered these massive reliefs in the royal residence of Nineveh. And the idea of a, a lion and a king is obvious, that he's... No one can beat the king. 
And it's used both ways. He can defeat a lion and no one can defeat him. And some of these, if you go to the British Museum of History website, you can spend more time than you want, as I have done for months, reading and studying and looking at the Assyrian history. One of my favorites is one of the Assyrian kings and a lion that's almost twice the size of any lion in nature, and he's put a spear through it. What's he showing off is power, his hubris, all by himself standing there killing a lion with a spear like he could do that. A boy did it once with a slingshot and a rock. But here's a big giant king who's giving a picture of himself. This is how powerful I am. This is what I do to my enemies. And this is a very, fairly graphic picture of the lion spewing out the blood of being killed. More importantly, the king was so strong and indefensible. Uh, um, when they dug in these areas, they found 20,000, listen, 20,000 clay tablets. They call it the king's library. This would be like going to the White House 300 years from now when America is no more and we find all the presidential papers of every president. They found history beyond history beyond history. We have so much evidence of the Assyrian Empire of these kings that are, by the way, also mentioned in where I put more stock and trade the authority of Scripture that corroborate archaeology. I would say that way. I'd say the Bible verifies archaeology, not the other way around. But if the world wants to say archaeology is different than the Bible, let them. That doesn't matter. I want you to have confidence in the Word and not get lost in being vilified or made fun of because you believe in a fish story. Why all this background? Manasseh, Amnon, Josiah, kings of Judah, all will talk about dealing with Assyria. Why all this? Well, the Assyrians could carve reliefs. They could put cuneiform records down. They could make uh, palaces and whatnot. The Israelites were prohibited from making idols. And even in the divided kingdom, there was something about idolatry that did catch up with them, and they pretty well didn't do um, carvings and engravings and statues and, and make like the Ashtaroth and the Asherim and so forth. They didn't do those kind of things for Yahweh Elohim, but they did something else. They wrote the Hebrew Scripture, the very Word of God. And that's what we are looking at. Nineveh is first mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. Nimrod was the grandson of Noah. And he went and built for himself a city that became known as Nineveh. It is a literal city. It is a famous city. It exists in ruin today. And God sent a prophet named Jonah, not to Israel, not to Judah, not to the divided kingdom, but to their enemy. And that is the very short book of Jonah. He's given a command, he dodges his duty, and we have the story unfolding. History records that in 612 B.C., the Medes, the Babylonians, and the Scythians all joined together to fight Nineveh. Now, as you see the Iran, Iraq, and the different aspects of, of different sects fighting each other, it, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. In antiquity, it was different titles, different alignments. It wasn't Islamic in those days. Different fights, different alignments. They were fighting each other. And the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They were always doing those things. And so Babylon, Assyria, and the Scythians gather together, and they dam up the river, and they flood Nineveh 
and it washes the city away. Now, that may seem hard to understand unless you know that those mud bricks that were made in the Assyrian Empire, just like the Canaanite Gate and the northern Tel Dan of Israel, they're made out of mud. They're not kilned. They're not stone. And they literally dissolve. In fact, listen to what you read in Nahum 2.6. The gates of the rivers are opened and the palace is dissolved. That's Nahum 100 years later. So the prophecies on both sides come true. Israel is going to go into captivity, and Nahum will prophesy also in chapter 3 that Nineveh is going to be washed away, and it was by their own people, if you will. Take your little booklet or take your Bible. We're using the New American Standard. Open to page 8, and I would like for us to read together the first three verses. I would ask you please to stand and we will read this together. It is the Word of God. Let us read it well and clearly and carefully. Let's read together. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Thanks. You can take your seat. The book is 48 verses. It is 125th of 1%. 125th of 1% of your Bible. And yet it is a remarkable piece of language of poetry of structure and we're going to spend some time hopefully uh, showing you some of these insights the subject is not jonah the subject is not a fish the subject is not whether or not a man could survive being swallowed by a fish the subject is god the subject is god's grace to an enemy the subject is god's grace to jonah in fact, if you look at the program, the tagline of the program, when grace makes you angry. This is a horrific enemy of the northern kingdom of Israel. And Jonah's been given an insufferable task. Now, Jonah's journey, and this is in two parts. First, his, command, his commission, and then his disobedience. The commission in verses 1 and 2, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord is formulaic in your Old Testament. That's a prophetic endorsement. The, the writers of Scripture, uh, Moses as well as Isaiah, different authors here, I would argue Jonah wrote the book, others will disagree. But the word of the Lord coming is a formulaic sound, technically saying God told him to do something. Now the prophet could hear instruction from God in a number of ways. He could have a visit like Abram did when the angel of the Lord appeared. He could have a phenomena as Moses did with a burning bush and a presence. He might have a dream or a vision. We're not told. But the formulaic, the word of the Lord came to this man is what we're keying in on. Somehow Jonah got the call. I want you to do a thing, Jonah. It's only 10 words in Hebrew. It takes a few longer for us to translate it in our English ear. But the three primary verbs Arise, go, and cry against. Arise, go, and cry against. I want you to get up 
I want you to go, and I want you to cry against. The rationale he is giving is, number one, I'm commanding you to do this. Number two, if they don't repent, I'm going to destroy them. Pretty simple, pretty clear, not popular, not tolerant, but God's told him to do a thing. Now, the disobedience is marked in verse 3. Like most prophets, they felt unsuited. They felt uh, afraid. Maybe they were uh, shrinking from their responsibility. Certainly the dialogue with Jonah, uh, with, with Moses, is at one time disappointing and al almost humorous. Who am I? I've never been any good speaking. What will I say if? What will I do when? And finally, God, in his anger, lets them take Aaron with them because he's afraid to go to Pharaoh. I think most of us would have been afraid to go to Pharaoh too. We have other prophets that are reluctant for the call. This is the only, this is the unique prophet who disobeys. But let's give him a little credit because none of the others were told to go to the enemy and preach destruction was at hand. They were within their enemies. They were speaking largely to Israel or to Judah when the kingdom was divided. But here they're told, Jonah is told to go, and he flatly disobeys. Now, don't miss the language. And if you're using your booklet or if you write in your Bible, which I highly encourage you to do. I know some of you, you were told, shame, never to write in your Bible. I think you should write in your Bible till there's no room left and then buy another Bible. But uh, if you can't bring yourself to it, write in your little study booklet. I want you to notice some of the action that the language helps us see. First of all, notice in verse 1, he's told to arise. And in verse 3, what does he do? He rises up. So he's, we're half on track with the verbs. But he doesn't arise to go to Nineveh. He arises to flee. Secondly, I want you to notice that he arises to flee, but he doesn't go up and cry out. He goes down and further goes down into the ship. So we've got this layer upon layer of verbal activity going. He pays a fare, he goes down, and twice we read, from the presence of the Lord. We're told twice. He's trying to get away from the presence of the Lord. Let's look at the journey on this map briefly. The, the legend of the map, Gath, Hefer, where he's from, Zebulun would be the tribe, and this would be marked in 2 Kings 14.25, where Jonah originates, Gath, Hefer, his home. Uh, we're unsure, of course, of the ship, and we're unsure of the destination. Tarshish is a mystery no one knows. Uh, the best scholars call it Tartessus, which would be near Gibraltar by Spain, about 2,000 miles from where he was supposed to go. It's not like east and west, but it's like as far as possible away. He's getting on a boat that's going on a 2,000-mile journey, if in fact it's Tarsus, and if so, he has made a statement, I'm going away from what God wants me to do. Now, Joppa is in your Bible. It's in your Bible maps. It today is a modern port. It's a small commercial port, but when you go to Israel, because it is God's will for you to go to Israel sometime, uh, we will take you north of Tel Aviv and you will go to Joppa, today called Jaffa, J-A-F-F-A. And if you go to one of these uh, um, green, homeopathic, earth, organic, love mother nature stores and buy fruit, uh, you might just find a Jaffa, J-A-F-F-A, orange, and they are from Israel, 
right north of the Tel Aviv airport. And as you leave the airport and drive, you'll see citrus everywhere. It's a great place uh, for growing citrus and Jaffa oranges. So you can say, I'm eating an orange, remembering Jonah's fleeing from Joppa. Um, after his experience at sea with the fish, he is vomited up on land at some point. We don't know where, obviously. And three on the map is then the legend. This would be the trade route. The trade route is essentially the easiest way to travel. You don't travel on peaks and crags and the mountain passes. You travel in valleys and ravines. The so-called the way of the sea, the, the Meredith Sea, the international highway in Israel, we call it. When you have the Mediterranean Sea on one side and you have this narrow ridge line and a valley, where are you going to travel? You're going to walk in the valley. It's easier to travel. And most of antiquity walked. They didn't have horses and mules. You were wealthy if you had that type of animal. So he walks on uh, number three there on the trade route toward Nineveh and again four modern Mosul, northern Iraq, right across from the Tigris River. Well, let's try to get some sand on our feet in the text. Number one, how often do you and I flee from the presence of the Lord? I doubt any of us has gotten a message, I want you to go to X and preach against it, or in so many days I'm going to destroy it. But, you know, every time you and I open this and read it, there are things that jump off the page at you and me that we are to be, to do, to change, to reorient our thinking. And is it fair to say, when I don't do what I know to do, I'm fleeing the presence of God's Word? It's clear as can be. It's plain as can be. I know it's wrong, but when the world and the culture and everybody mocks and ridicules you and me for our beliefs, our convictions, what do we do? We cave. Liberal scholarship is a fascinating thing because when someone becomes smart in their field of study and they become a scholar and they start writing papers and preaching and pontificating, then we have a war that goes on in academia and little by little, the liberal scholars have won the day probably no more than four or five schools in the world at a master's level, graduate level, would say this is the inspired word of God without error, and Jonah is a true story. We've lost the battle in academia. And one reason I labor to give you a little history of Assyria is you'll never hear it anywhere else. And I want you to have confidence that what you believe is not a myth, it's not an old story. It's not something relegated to children's books. It's a story of a man called by God to obey him, to do something he told him to do. And God's gracious to him and to the people that he will go and speak. How often do we try to flee the presence of God? When we hear it, and this is what happens to all of us. It happens to me. The smarter you get in your salvation and Christianity, the smart, you, you, you sanctify your sin. I sanctify my sin. I get smart at rationalizing and justifying my sin. Some injustice happens to me, and by goodness, there's no way in the world I'm going to follow the rules, God, when they're not following the rules and they're getting all the benefit and blessing, and I'm going to show them and show you and show me, and I'm going to do what I want to do. 
we've just fled the presence of the Lord. I don't think I'm that different from you or you that different from me. I think we all do this all the time. We know a thing to be true, but rather than obey it, we surround ourselves with people, and sometimes Christians, with the most well-meaning intentions, with our worst advice possible, and listen to the wrong voices. That's liberalism. I will, I will say it until I'm dead. Don't let the world teach you theology. Do not let the world tell you what the Bible means. Do not let the world tell you these stories aren't true. Because where will it stop pragmatically? You'll have a Jeffersonian Bible with no miracles and Jesus buried. End of story. You can trust God's word or not. It really boils down to that. He has spoken. He's not stuttered. Darnold Gray Barnhouse. When you run away from the Lord, you never get to where you are going, and you always pay your own fare. But when you go the Lord's way, you always get to where you're going, and He pays the fare. When you run away from the Lord, you never get to where you're going, and you always pay your own fare. But when you go the Lord's way. You always get to where you're going and he pays the fare. Somehow, we've got to get our wrong thinking recalibrated. This isn't gestalt. This isn't behavior modification. This isn't just changing our thinking. This, we've, as we've talked about in wisdom, this is changing our mindset. And we need Christ's spirit to do that. We have to move from bad counsel and well-intentioned people, both among believers and certainly the world's advice and say, will you stand? If, if he has forgiven you of your sins and promised you eternal life, where will you stop believing what else he has said? You see, it's a greater problem. It's a bigger miracle that he can forgive the likes of us and save us than it is whether Jonah was miraculously in the belly of a fish for three days. Don't let the world teach you theology. Don't let the science departments trump Scripture. At the end of the day, when we sanctify our sin, when we pay our own fare and go our own way, we not only hurt ourselves, we hurt those around us. We truly do. But, secondly, He is the kind sovereign. He is the kind sovereign not a kind sovereign he is the kind sovereign he does not play games he's not cruel he's not unfair he's not mean he does not hold a hammer over your head and mine waiting for the next mistake and then bam bringing home discipline and punishment yes he disciplines Yes, there is a bandwidth, we might say, of where he will tolerate your sin and mine. I like to think of it this way. We need grace because we fell at the beginning. We need mercy because we fall every day. We need grace because we fell in Adam. But we need mercy because we fall every stinking day. And if you don't think you fall every day, you're proud and 
arrogant, and therefore you fell. We all fall. We're a sinful people, and we will sin till we die. But he's the kind sovereign. And we run away in all sorts of ways and fashions. I don't like that part. I can't obey you there. It's too hard. I know it's right, but I won't do it because of the injustice. I'm going to do it my own way. And off we go to Tarshish. At some point, God's grace comes and calls you back. The Holy Spirit is better than a guilty conscience. The Holy Spirit is not there just to make you and me miserable. Does he at times? I believe so. In fact, when people chart off in courses of unbridled sin, and I don't care what you say, I don't care what the Bible says, I will often pray that they are miserable. So if you go off in some direction, don't tell me about it. I'm going to pray you'll be miserable and find no hope. I've done this too long and seen too many people that are miserable in their sin. I've not seen anyone happy in their sin, myself included. So why do we do it? Maybe part of it is we don't understand the kind sovereign. He loves you. He cares about you intently. He's a loving father. Does that mean there'll be no injustice, no sin, no problems, no difficult children, no troubles in marriages, no divorces, no disease? No, it doesn't mean that because we're in a fallen structure because of our parents. The world groans for redemption. But will we live faithfully? Running away is foolish, as we'll see. But we all do it at different times. But he's the kind sovereign. And not only will he help Nineveh, we all know the story too well. Look how kind he will be to poor old Jonah. And he's that kind to you. He loves you. He knows everything about you. He knows all you think. And he still loves you. And the repentant believer comes not beating and lamenting and legalistically. The repentant believer comes back in utter humility on his or her face and says, I don't know why you love me. I don't know why. But thank you. And let my life be a thank you back to the kind sovereign. Our Father in heaven, we do well always to remember our sinful condition, but never to forget the price paid at Calvary for you to give a relationship to us. For those who've trusted Christ in Christ alone, you've removed our sin. I pray you will bless us and keep us, that your face will shine upon us, and you will be gracious to us. I pray that you will lift up our countenance and you will give us peace. We thank you in the loving, matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. God bless you. Have a phenomenal week.